0: That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said conversations with interesting people from the worlds of sports, music, comedy, and more talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hey, everybody, welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. This week's guest, Aaron Gloria Ryan, co-host of the Hysteria podcast on Crooked Media... Uh, the rest of the spiel you'll get when I welcome her into the show. But it's a really great conversation I've been wanting to have her on for a while. And she's just one of those women that um I sort of aspire to be, although I think she might be younger than me. Um But one of those unapologetic badasses who who um kind of moves through the world in a way that inspires other people to be more badass. And the conversation ranges from everything from this tiny town she grew up in where Subway was literally the only draw. Um, to working her way through various comedy gigs, getting uh, a job writing for It's Always Sunny on Twitter, just by being funny on Twitter, um, the Hysteria podcast and, and getting past the guilt of talking about what we consider stereotypically female things and being able to have an honest conversation about female things uh, in ways that are unique, especially because the voices are all women on the show. Um, and also how Don Music from The Muppets gets her through her writer's block. We kind of, we kind of get all over the place, but I love chatting with her. So hopefully you'll enjoy my conversation with Erin Gloria Ryan. That's what she said. I know you guys are going to make fun of me because I always say I'm super excited about the next guest because I always am because I only have really exciting, interesting people, but I'm really super excited about the next guest because I have a massive ginormous girl crush on her and i just i can't wait to talk to her in person instead of just listening to her all the time she's the host of crooked Media hysteria podcast she's a writer for it's always sunny in philadelphia a contributing editor at the daily beast she was named one of brooklyn's 50 funniest people in 2016 so we will now find out if she still qualifies or if she's really dropped <laughs> off in the last couple years erin gloria ryan she is not in fact the daughter of Paul Ryan, but she will take that <laughs> joke to her grave if it still works. <laughs> until he responds and disowns the uh, the completely made up connection that they have. Uh, Aaron, <laughs> I'm so excited to have you here. There's so much to get to, and I I want to start out with Frederick, Wisconsin, which is where you grew up and you claim to have been raised by wolves. Uh, I'm married to someone from Wisconsin, so it's it's about the same, regardless of where you are. It probably is essentially like growing up in a barn. Tell me about your childhood. <sighs>
1: Okay. Uh, Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to do this. And um, secondly, the Paul Ryan joke started as just a throwaway comment that I made when I was co-hosting a live Pod Save America show in Madison, Wisconsin. (laughs) And I just threw it out as just like a complete joke statement, because Ryan is a pretty common last name, but we were both from Wisconsin, and it just got out of hand, and now it's become a thing where some people believe that it's real, and I just you know keep repeating it, because a good way to make a joke funnier is to just say it over and over again, and then it'll become funny. So I grew up in Frederick, Wisconsin, that's correct. It's a tiny little town of, I believe... Eleven hundred people now. Uh, when I was a kid, it was around a thousand when I was a kid. So it's really a bustling metropolis. And um, I went to public school. I went there my whole life. Um, there were forty-four kids in my class. I think when I graduated, oh I'm not sure some of them might have been in jail and not <laughs> able to walk across the stage. Um, but yeah, it was just it was very remote. The closest um, movie theater was like a half an hour country driving away. Uh, The closest stoplight was the same deal. There was a McDonald's in a town called Rice Lake, which was 45 minutes away. And sometimes on school trips, we got to go there, like to McDonald's. Um, There was a subway in my town, not an underground train, but a sandwich place. And when it (laughs) opened, uh, the senior class went there for senior skip day because it was a very exciting event that we had oh a God. subway in our town. Yeah, so I moved out, of, you know, it's a it's a great place to be from and I, you know, my parents still live there and I still go back and visit a couple times a year, but yeah, it's there's not a, there's not a whole lot going on.
0: Were you as a kid always uh very funny? Did you dream of of entertaining when you were younger?
1: Um, I think I was bored. I was really bored <laughs> when I was a kid and and I was alone a lot because we lived in the country and if my parents just got sick of having us in the house, they would just be like, go play in the woods. You know, so we were sent outside to play a lot at the time. You couldn't get cable TV uh, because cable companies were like, it is not worth it for us to drive trucks all the way out there. So like six people can watch Nickelodeon. So we, um, we couldn't get cable unless we had bought a satellite dish and my parents weren't into that. So we had like five TV channels and we had a set of encyclopedias, and so we spent a lot of time just kind of like reading and playing outside and trying to imagine things and make things. And, and so it was sort of it was sort of like that. We had chickens, we had um, sheep for a little while, we had rabbits. So it was like a lot of I don't know, kind of little house on the prairie, but in the eighties and nineties. Um. So I mean, we had an outhouse, first... which was great. Yeah, no, thank <laughs> God, we did have indoor plumbing, but we also had like a well in the front yard that you could pump with your hands to get water up oh, from yeah? the ground. And we heated our house with a wood stove. So I would go like cut wood with my dad. <laughs> like that was a fun father daughter activity was like sharp objects for, for parent and child. But uh, I think I realized that people reacted to things that I said through the act of being a real pain in the ass teen to my mom. Because like to be a really snotty teen requires a certain level of creativity and sharpness that I really honed a lot. I wasn't a bad kid. I never I never did anything wrong. I never, you know, I wasn't a partier or anything like that. I was, you know, in a bunch of sports and stuff. But I was a huge pain. Um and I was really snotty and I was always getting in like verbal arguments with my parents. And I realized that if I was like funny in the argument, I would feel like I'd won, even though there's no winning, when your parents could just be like, you're grounded, you just automatically lose. (laughs) And then about when I got to college, uh, I went to Notre Dame for undergrad. I remember feeling kind of outside of the typical Notre Dame student. And so I would use like kind of feeling like not like I fit in as a way to make jokes about what fitting in was. And, And I think after that, I just kind of slowly... Use I use, like, humor as, as defense against, like, having to feel any feelings, which is, like, a standard humorist or comedy writer or comedian type thing. Um, right. But it, it didn't start to present itself as an opportunity for me to make a living off of it until I was, like, well into my 20s, until I got my, my first writing job.
0: So you were an English major at Notre Dame. Um, was that a fear for you at all? Like, Notre Dame's in the middle of nowhere kind of as well, but it's a big Bustling school. Uh, was there any part of you that wanted to stay close to home, or were you ready to go when you could get out of there?
1: I think I, I was ready to go. I spent a lot of time when I was younger, just like fantasizing about going to a big city or a, a different place. I I went to Notre Dame because I applied to a few different schools at the same time, and I, by the time I was a senior, I was so tired of thinking about, or a junior, I was so tired of thinking about where I was going to go that I just was like, you know what? I'm just leaving my college choice to the gods and whichever acceptance letter I get first is where I'm going. And I got Notre Dame first. So, I mean, which is like a really cocky thing for a kid to do. I was like, you know what? Whichever great school accepts me first. It was just like, whatever. I was a cocky kid and it ended up serving me well, but I acknowledged that there was a level of cockiness to it. I I think Notre Dame was, if I could go back in time and tell myself at 17, where to go to college, I wouldn't have told myself to go to Notre Dame. Not that it's not a good school, but it's sort of, it's a it's a really strange place compared to the rest of the world. And if your only experience is in a tiny little town in Wisconsin, and then your next life experience is in Catholic Disneyland in South Bend, <laughs> Indiana, it's sort of like you go into the world completely with, with no real experiences in any real place. So like right after Notre Dame, I did AmeriCorps on the South side of Chicago, which was intensely different than any place I'd ever been. And it it, in in a good way, but you know, Notre Dame was, um, I think it was, it was a place that prepared people for a life that I never was really planning on living. So I guess I I don't want to kind of talk smack on my, my alma mater, even because there's plenty of reasons that I get mad about empty, but I think it was like a good experience for me at that exact moment. But if I had to do it over again, I would have made different choices.
0: So you do the thing that many people from schools in the surrounding area do, which is move to a superior state and city in Chicago, as soon as you get the chance, uh, which Mm I applaud you for very smart move. And then you work at AmeriCorps and Merrill Lynch. Is it, am I hearing this right? What's happening? Yeah, It's
1: it's super weird. I've had a real weird life. I sort of like Forrest Gump or like a, a lost millennial who had no idea what they were doing. Um, <laughs> I was like graduated, and I knew I wanted to do some kind of service work. I thought I wanted to go into the nonprofit sector, so I did AmeriCorps. I did it in on the south side of Chicago, and it was a it was an interesting experience. I'm glad I did it. But once I was done with my year of living on like a stipend, basically, I decided that I was really I didn't like. That particular slice of the nonprofit world, because to me, it was just uh, kind of core but with added sanctimony. Like people in the people were getting rich working for nonprofit organizations, and that mm. seemed so strange. Like, why are you? You know, why? Why is there a, is there? Why are people being promoted? And, and you know, again, I was I was somebody who didn't have a ton of real world experience, so for me to be shocked about that. You know, it might not be a shocking thing for me to discover to like revisit now in my life. But at the time, I was like, I can't believe people are using this to get rich and go to galas and rub elbows with like super rich people. Like, aren't you supposed to be helping people? So I decided uh, that I preferred the honesty of the financial services industry where everybody just was completely straightforward about what they were going after with money. I worked for one company for a bit and then Merrill Lynch hired me away. And about, gosh, Right around when I went to Merrill was when things kind of started to go south in the financial services industry. And it was like at that point, you know, I I didn't have I wasn't one of those kids who could just like move home to live with their parents if things weren't going well for them you know, because my parents lived in the middle of nowhere. So it was sink or swim for me. And Merrill Lynch was a job. And so when the economy took a turn, I was like, well, I have to hang on to this job. Because if I don't have a job, I can't pay my rent. And I don't have health care. So I just kind of spent several years working in financial services, just because I needed a job. And uh, just in complete terror that I would like, get fired or laid off. And then I would have to like move back to Frederick, but that ended up not being the case.
0: So you somehow go from that to writing at Jezebel and then moving to New York to full on pursue a writing career. What was the impetus to suddenly say, okay, I'm done just getting by. I'm going to do the thing I want to do or or dreamed of doing.
1: Well, that was the thing about writing for me. I know a lot of writers who always knew deep down that the only thing that they wanted to do was write and they didn't know how to exist in any other space. I know a lot of comedians who feel that way too, but I never, when I was going into writing, that's not how I felt. I felt sort of like I was just given opportunities that I had never even considered were possibilities before. So here's an example. When I was working at Merrill Lynch, I was very bored, but I had to like be at my desk and by my phone in case people called um, and wanted to make trades and stuff. So when I was just kind of sitting there waiting for somebody to need something, I would just kind of surf the internet and read as much as I could about things that were actually interesting to me. And at the time there was this website called Jezebel that was really, it just kind of seemed like my kind of people. It was sassy, irreverent, sarcastic women who, you know, cared about pop culture, but also paid attention to politics. And it just was, it became something that I really enjoyed reading. And it also had a really active commenting community. And so I started commenting on the website and the editor of the website noticed that I was a funny commenter and asked if I would write. And that is how I got my first writing job, was by being a funny commenter on a website. And yeah, and then I then I took that, I kind of, once I started doing like weekend work at Jezebel and like getting paid to write stuff for them, I realized that, oh, this is the thing that I want to do. It's sort of like if you ever have a, I don't know, if you ever like injure yourself or you throw your back out or something and, and you're you just and you can't kind of get used to being super uncomfortable and then you go get it treated and suddenly right. everything is amazing and you're like oh my totally. gosh i've been feeling so crappy for so long and i had no idea that's how i felt when i started writing i was like oh this is how it feels to feel good about what i'm doing and to be happy it had never occurred to me that that was the thing that was wrong that there was something so out of whack in my life i just lived with the discomfort of it so as soon as i started doing it i was like okay well there's nothing else that i can be doing and so i um weirdly enough I, you know i'm not somebody who ever does I, if i'm working in if people are paying me to do a job i do the best i can even if i hate it even if i absolutely hate the job because i have a lot of catholic guilt and i just <laughs> don't i don't like to mess up you know and uh, so even when I was at Merrill Lynch and Mary unhappy, I was still doing my best. And so after I'd been there for several years, a few years, and I was about ready to make a move to writing full time, I like asked my boss if he would lay me off <laughs> instead of having me quit. And he agreed to lay me off. And they had a party for me, like a layoff <laughs> party, <laughs> um, because I was like, look, I'm leaving the industry totally, blah, 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 blah. And uh, yeah, so I, I quit. I took this full time staff writing job writing about politics. I'd never really written about politics before, but I was like, okay, I'm going to learn how to do this and uh, moved to New York about six months later. And then um, that that was the kind of first phase in working as a writer. And I was, I think, the first time I ever got paid to write something, I was, I think, 27, I want to say. So, you know, it's not like I was, it it was, I started, I got started late, but um, once I started, I was so happy doing it that I feel like I had a ton of energy to go forward.
0: And then you start to realize like um, maybe the things that you did before that influenced and helped you, or maybe it was just a waste of time, but either way, at least you found it, which is, which is important. Why move to New York? Was that, did you feel like you needed to do it to take it completely seriously and dive fully in?
1: I love Chicago. It was, it's such a good city. And I'm always like people that are, that I hang out with are, they make fun of me for how much I harp on how great a city Chicago is. Like it's a great, great place, but it's also a place that once you hit, a certain age, it's more normal to get married and settle down and have a family than it is to kind of, you can't really Peter Pan in Chicago. You know, you you have to, there's a point where you are expected to kind of move on to a different phase in life. And not that I was in Chicago, just like bopping around being a party girl, but I wasn't having a family at that point in my life wasn't a priority. And I knew that New York was a city where, first of all, my job was based Even though they let me work remotely, it it felt like it was a better move for me to be closer to where my base was. Also, it just was like, you know, New York is a place where I can spend time working on being a good writer and developing this. And Chicago is a place that would maybe not really have a community of people that were on the same path. So that, that was kind of why I made the decision. And I also kind of, ever since I was a little kid... I wanted to live in New York. I remember asking my mom uh, where Sesame Street took place. And she was like, I think Brooklyn. And I was like, all right, well, I'm moving to Brooklyn. And she was like, <laughs> okay, Aaron, you're, you're three. But it, you know, it was something that kind of in my mind, I've always, I'd always wanted to live and I made the move out there and it was like rough for the first year that I was out there. It's hard to support yourself on almost any salary out there, much less a, a writing salary. But you just kind of realize right away when you move to a city like that, that, you're capable of kind of surviving a lot more than you think.
0: Yeah. New York can be <clears throat> scary, but sometimes in order to do something that requires a bit of desperation, you need to go somewhere where you're going to be desperate for it to work. Um, otherwise yep. it's too easy to kind of half-ass it and, and, and not push too hard in New York. You start writing for your, you're still working at Jezebel and you add on writing for the VH1 show, best week ever. Um, you work yeah. up to managing editor at Jezebel. You write for the New York times, playboy, another couple things. So, as you're doing all these different jobs, they all involve writing. And I assume your your comedic and, and snarky take on things. Where did you feel like you were thriving the most? Or was there one where you were like, this is, this is it? This is what I was supposed to be doing? Or was there always a goal off in the distance?
1: You know, it's funny. I think that having a really crazy, stupid goal that maybe you think is so out there that you don't tell anybody about it, because it's almost embarrassing how it Uh, ambitious it is I think it's good to just have that in your head all the time and and shoot for it because even if you don't quite get exactly what you want at least you're kind of aiming in a trajectory that will lead you sort of in that direction and as soon as I got started getting paid to write I remember thinking I really wanted to write for the daily show with Jon Stewart I really like it was such a it was like he's so funny He's so incisive. He takes no prisoners. Like I just love. I loved the show and I loved him, especially like you know in the pre Obama years. It was so good and adversarial. And you know, I kind of had in the back of my mind when I started writing for Best Week Ever, which was a lot more like pop culture topical stuff. And you know, it just kind of taught me a little bit how to write scripts or whatever. And when I went back to Jezebel and I started. Kind of leaning more into the politics stuff. Then I started feeling like I was getting closer to what I wanted to do. And in, in my head, I remember thinking, "Okay, then, may, you know, maybe I'll be good enough to like submit to write for the Daily Show." And then I realized, like, that I was kind of doing something that I wanted to be doing more than the Daily Show thing. And especially, you know, and 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 what what ended up happening is, I um, when I was in New York, I met a guy, ended up having a boyfriend for a while, who was. Got a job writing for the Daily Show, and I remember thinking, oh well, now I can never, now I can never do this. <laughs> um, and everybody who works there is super talented. I still know a lot of people who are there. But even though I was still shooting for that like crazy dream in the back of my mind, I realized that like the shape it took in my life was different. And I really love kind of occupying the space where I'm talking about like you know politics, culture, and and humor from like a, a expressly female perspective. And it's not, if if I had, if somebody came up to me right now and handed me that, that dream job that I came up with in my head in like 2011, I would probably not want to do it because what I'm doing now is closer to what I really want to be doing. I think, you know, so, so I've never really had it to answer your question. I've never had a job before this point that has felt more perfect for me. Like right now, it's really fun to be in a space where I just get to talk into a microphone for a couple of hours each week with like really interesting women where we talk about politics and culture and and use our senses of humor to address those things. Um, So I think right now is the closest I've ever been to like my crazy dream, which I still, you know, which I still have in the back of my mind, but I don't really want anymore. I just use it as like a guide, a guiding, guiding light, I guess.
0: You told an interviewer, I'm not in a hurry. I'm not going to go through comedy menopause when I hit my early 40s. I'll keep being kind of funny unless I get too rich or too religious, <laughs> which sounds about right. Um, Do you think that partly that's because you are a writer that you don't have that fear? Because I know you also mentioned that Nell Scovell is someone who you admire, and she's been on the podcast and does talk about how – sort of inexplicably her age scares her in terms of feeling like she would be hired to write on things, even not as a performer, Mm -hmm. but behind the scenes. Does that worry you at all?
1: First of all, I love Nell and it's so cool that she was on your podcast. She's somebody that I've like always looked up to. I think she's just the the greatest. She's awesome. Um, I think that the way that we approach age has changed as like generations have progressed. And I think Nell was such a trailblazer and she was, at the forefront of women being in writer's rooms at all, that her experience is informed by a time that was a lot more hostile to people that were getting older. Now, then again, you know, I don't have her experience, but I'm I'm assuming that, you know, there's a bunch of people that are my age right now, mid-30s, that are doing what I do, and I don't think any of them have intentions of leaving. At, you know, as of now, they're not like dropping out. They're just kind right. of continuing on. I, I think that I'm not afraid of getting older, but I am afraid of getting rigid. And I'm afraid that people might associate me being older with rigidity and not understanding kind of the zeitgeist and not being able to make jokes about things that are happening totally. with like pop culture because I am alienated from it. So I can see people maybe treating me differently as I get older for those reasons. But I guess the only thing I'm afraid of in getting older is, is not being able to, or willing to understand people that are a lot younger than me or like, or exhibiting a hostility toward like culture or becoming curmudgeonly. I think once you start becoming curmudgeonly as a comedy writer, uh, it, it ends up just kind of being one note and not great. So I think the thing that I'm the most afraid of when it comes to like getting older is being less funny because I'm not as like malleable. Yeah, that
0: totally makes sense. And we know so many examples of people who used to be like cutting edge and so uh, subversive and they get a little bit older and all of a sudden all they do is just complain about how they can't be at college campuses. And you're like,
1: Mm-hmm. yeah What's that's so, and that's so boring, you know <laughs> yeah. that's i mean that's like that's so boring. I think like the funniest jokes are jokes that demonstrate an understanding of both the uh thing that you're trying to make fun of and the person making fun of the thing like you have to have intense self awareness in order to make like a really funny joke that makes fun of somebody else. That's why I think like vintage louis c k prior to the troubles was so good was because he seemed to have this like intense self-awareness in addition to like what he was throwing out there and I was just talking about this with somebody today like you can see like a lot of directors or writers or you know creators or whatever you see kind of stuff they did early in their career and it's like it's really good and then you can see the point in their career when people stopped questioning them and telling them no and then things get bad because nobody is so good that they never need a person saying like this doesn't make any sense or like this actually isn't funny or this is actually kind of stupid or i've heard this joke a million times before like right. nobody's nobody's good enough to just constantly create great stuff without a, a second pair of eyes and i think people sometimes age into thinking they don't need that and that is uh, that's not true
0: yeah, 100%. You mentioned that one of the reasons that you love what you're doing now is because it kind of combines all these things. You know, you, you get to speak from a very uniquely female perspective in a snarky, sarcastic way. It's almost like a Jezebel turned podcast with a political bent to it. Um, and a lot of women, myself included, love Jezebel so much because we want that, that satire, that edge, that snark to it. We don't just want feely, good, flowery women crap. Um, And so that's what makes the podcast so good. But when you were having meetings about this podcast, what were the biggest sticking points in tone or approach or content that you guys didn't all agree with as you were trying to create it?
1: That's a great question. Um, Crooked Media approached me, gosh, like two years ago and asked me if I was interested in doing a podcast. And I said, sure, without really knowing what kind of podcast I wanted to do. So I started kind of talking to people within Crooked Media who you never hear on the podcast. There's um, a the person in, in charge of development, Corinne, and then Mukta, who's another woman who works there and is in oversees a lot of podcast development. So the three of us talked a lot about what we thought would be interesting. And I kind of early on wanted to do a podcast that was just women's voices. And I love podcasts that have male hosts, like some of my very favorite singers and talkers and... You know, commentators are, are men, but I just don't think that there are a ton of podcasts right now. Like, it's it's changing, and every single day there are more, and that's great. But there aren't a ton of podcasts where it's only women talking, and I think that that, is, that was an interesting thing. Like, I, I was like, I want to create something where it's just women talking. And I was also thinking about, there's been research into co-education. Like all girls schools versus all boys schools and different outcomes that girls and boys have, and basically, um, girls who are educated only with girls tend to do better in school, learn more, retain more. Boys who are only educated with boys tend to have some like negative behavioral outcomes hmm. if they're just in a in a boys only school. Not all boys, but you know, just I'm I'm talking in very broad strokes. And then when you put the two together, boys their uh, performance increases and girls. Suffer, and that's not to say that coeducation is bad. I just was thinking about how when women are left alone to have a conversation themselves, to have an interaction themselves, to think among themselves, it's a different sort of conversation than if there's a man in the room, even if the man is means no harm. It just it changes the tenor when there's a guy around. And so I wanted to have men and women. I wanted to give them a chance to listen to women having a conversation without men around. So you know, it's cool to have a, a table full of women talking to each other, but it's cool if that table full of women is also bringing a ton of different experiences and backgrounds to the conversation. So we wanted to make sure that people were diverse in background, diverse in geography, diverse in experience. And uh, so it was we had we were trying to kind of get a lot of moving pieces to work together. But we we found a group of women that we we're super excited about. We launched the podcast last summer. And once we launched it, it was kind of, we had some, you know, segment ideas that work in testing, but it was kind of trial and error because you can test something and think it sounds great and really like how it sounds, but then, you know, listeners respond to different things. So there wasn't any sticking points, really. We all knew that it would be kind of a daunting task to find a diverse and opinionated and smart and like cool group of women who weren't already totally booked up and unable to commit to doing a podcast. Totally. Um, So we, so, you know, once that got started, we sort of, the only challenges are sort of like scheduling and and responding to the kind of crazy news cycle because the first episode that we recorded was, uh, we recorded it in the morning on a Wednesday and an hour after we got done, Justice Kennedy announced he was going to retire. We had to to go back and re-record the top of the podcast because it just didn't make any sense to release a podcast on Thursday that had been recorded on Wednesday morning, when what had happened in the middle of the, of the day Wednesday wasn't a part of it, so that's totally. the only like the yeah the only like weird sticking points is that the news moves so fast, but that's that's been the that's been the main thing.
0: I, I ask in part because when we launched ESPNW, I was really a, a part of a lot of the conversations about what makes this W right. It's still a part of the larger ESPN, but if we're trying to appeal to female athletes and female sports fans, what's specific to them? How do we reach women without pandering? How do we approach the things that are stereotypically women's interests without turning away women who consider themselves more like a traditional sports fan, right? And it's Mm -hmm. so frustrating because things that are traditionally accepted as men's things, we're supposed to all find interesting. And even if we Mm -hmm. don't, we're supposed to just listen to them, talk about them, and no one throws a fit. And yet it sometimes feels uncomfortable to talk about stereotypically female things And not worry about whether or not it's interesting to everybody who's listening. Do Mm -hmm. you ever have that? Or did you guys ever have that conversation about how stereotypically women do we want to be without having to worry about people saying, I don't like that you're making this sound like that we don't actually care about, whether that's doing our nails or reading Cosmo or whatever?
1: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And and it also I think about that all the time, because sometimes I will find myself drawn to something that isn't any sillier than caring about a Pittsburgh Steelers game on its face you know but i i've internalized a sort of i think i've internalized a little sexism myself every every woman trying to exist in a society that has sexism as a through line has, you know, it's impossible to escape the fact that as much as I try to see every single person as a human being, whether or not they're a man or a woman, I still sometimes like look down on stereotypically female activities as, as somehow lesser. And it's like, I think that it's really good for us to confront the conflicts that we have about these things. And like right now, listening to you articulate what you were articulating, it's just like, that's the sort of honesty. I think that women want, because I think most women, yeah, maybe like you do like doing your nails, but you also sort of like hate bridal showers. So, you know, maybe you do, maybe you, you really love, you know, getting dressed up and going out to dinner, but you really hate this other thing. And like, let's talk about that. Like, why, why are you conflicted? Why is is it, is it objectively not Good to talk about something just because it's considered girly, the thing that i was I was kind of conflicted about, and this is a, I think probably different than the sports world, but I was really against talking about sex on the podcast hmm. um at first, and part of it was because I felt like you know even though I joke about it in my in my like on my personal social media or whatever, I sometimes feel like if you're a political commentator, if you're a woman, a political commentator, and you make like sex jokes, or you talk about your own sex life, then people don't take you as seriously. And I don't really talk about my own sex life, just because I think that's like, a—I imply that sex has occurred within my life, but I don't like go into details about it, you know? And part of that is because I just, I'm not really that sort of a person, but I think part of my fear of talking about sex on the podcast was that I didn't want people to take me less seriously because they thought I was, you know, somebody boy crazy and, and going out and just like trying to get laid and all that stuff. So I think like, but that's something that we just started this last episode that we had. We did talk about it and I felt really happy with the way the conversation went because every woman in the conversation was able to talk about it in the way that she felt comfortable talking about it. Like one of the, one of the panelists was very comfortable mentioning her own, you know, preferences, And one of them was a little bit more comfortable talking, in, you know, more broadly about it. It was just, I think that what's important is that when women do feel conflicted about things, we talk about our conflicts and it sort of becomes this like secondary layer of conversation that we get to have that if you are talking about things men are interested in, quote unquote, uh, you don't really get to have it as much.
0: Hey, everybody, don't forget to go to ESPN and Apple Podcasts and subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain so you always have the latest episode. Don't forget to rate and review it as well and tell all your friends how awesome it is. You know, you mentioned the sex thing. Um One thing that I really frustrates me that I try to push back on as someone who, you know, has I'm like comedy adjacent. I'm not a comedian, but I like to use it in my work, especially in sports, which is supposed to be entertainment and too often gets taken a little too seriously, um, is -hmm. that if you are a feminist and you're outspoken about, you know, feminist principles, then the idea of being, of working blue at all is at odds for people who are too dumb to get the nuance, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so there's this expectation that women can't be both secure in what they believe you know, in terms of morality or or standards or respect or equality or whatever, and simultaneously be funny in ways that are subversive. How do you deal with that? Because I think people don't always want to see women as being able to be both, being both funny and principled and and outspoken on matters that matter.
1: Yeah, I think the issue is, like, that it's a lot of people have difficulty seeing women as people. Like, they have to be reminded of, uh, like, it's just people. I was talking to a writer the other day. And I was complaining about a show that had, like, one female character. And I was like, can we just... I'm so tired of movies and TV shows where it's just this imaginary world where it's all dudes hanging out and having dude experiences. And the women exist to provide, like, motivation for the dudes to have experiences. But they have no experiences of their own. And this person was like, yeah, but, like, you know, why do you have to write female characters? Like, just write characters and make some of them girls. (laughs) Like, just try... Try that. Try thinking of us as people. Try thinking of us as people with a range of emotions, a range of experiences, <laughs> and see how that works out. I think that your point about um, attractiveness, too, is is really interesting because I, I think, you know, at this point I'm totally dead inside, and I have, you know, because I've, I've been on the Internet for so long that I have no emotions whatsoever when people try to tell me a compliment or an insult. But one of the things that I think is really funny is that, like, a grieved men who you know I was never trying to make jokes for I was never trying to write for will tell me as as though this is the most insulting thing they can possibly say like you know what I don't want to you like okay (laughs) good like fine I I, this this like there's some kind of like I'm a video game character and my health (laughs) increases when there's like imaginary brainwaves coming from men toward me that they want to have sex with me. It's like, you wanting to or not wanting to have sex with me literally has, could not have any less effect on my life. I don't believe in astrology whatsoever, and I believe that the sun in Leo has more effect on my daily life than whether or not you want to have sex with me personally right now. I don't care. And I think that I'm def- I'm far from the first woman to be like, Uh, Okay, I don't care about your boner. Far from it. But it's the pervasiveness of the idea that I think you're hot or I don't think you're hot could make or break a woman's self-esteem or should direct a woman's career. is something that I think is really troubling. Like, you know, there's a lot, I think there are a lot of men out there who are super thoughtful and forward thinking and really want to live in a world where women are happy and fulfilled. And then there's this kind of sticky part of the population that just still doesn't get it. And it's almost like, how many times do you need to hear it before you actually internalize the fact that like women want to be more than whether or not they are found attractive and women want to be free to talk about sex or to make sex jokes and also be taken seriously as, as thinkers and writers and commentators when it comes to more serious topics. I mean, it's frustrating, but at least it's it's kind of funny to make fun of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. How do you get into It's Always Sunny and was writing for TV something that you had always kind of thought about?
1: The Always Sunny story is pretty crazy, too. I, like I said, I've had a sort of Forrest Gumpy drift <laughs> into the place that I'm at right now. Um, Rob McElhenney, who plays Mac on the show, he's one of the creators. He's the creator, and he developed it with uh, Glenn Howerton. He discovered me on Twitter and thought I was a comedian, and then he started kind of clicking through, and he saw that I was like a journalist was working at the Daily Beast, and he read my stuff and thought that I was somebody that he would want to get to know that I was funny enough to write for TV. So he sent me a DM, and he asked if I would be interested in talking to him about TV, and I said, sure. And we talked on the phone, and we ended up kind of becoming friendly and talking about ideas, like if I were writing a TV show, what would I want it to be? And we kind of went back and forth for a while. And um, we were working on a project together, and then one day, like last January, he called me at work and was like, Do you wanna come and write for It's Always Funny in Philadelphia? And I was like, Okay. <laughs> and that's how I got the job. Um Rob is uh yeah, it was it was like kind of surreal. I remember taking the I remember the exact conference room that I had like ducked into to take the call and coming out of the conference room and feeling like tingly. Like I can't believe that I'm not like, I and I had to be there in a month. They're like, okay, well, you have to move to LA in like a month. I remember being like completely just floored. But, you know, Rob is a person who has always been, since I've known him, like a very supportive, positive mentor type person. He like aggressively finds people that he believes in and he will do what he can to put them in positions to have opportunities to prove themselves. Like I didn't have an agent at the time. I didn't have like uh, a spec. All, all we had was a script that I had been working on that he had seen, and uh, so he just he just kind of took a leap. And so I flew out to LA and was in the room full of these incredible writers who um, all had been in the world to some extent before I had been, and it was just so it was so lovely. Like Charlie Day is just like a hilarious person to work with, and the other writers, Megan Gans, one of the executive producers, is great there's uh David Hornsby who plays cricket on the show also just like jaw-droppingly funny. So it was just like really kind of whirlwind. I couldn't even think about what I was doing as I was doing it and then, you know, uh I was suddenly out in LA suddenly writing for TV and uh then when I came back to New York, Rob got in touch again about me working on a different project and then I uh, got another job offer, and then I kind of was like, all right, I guess I don't live in New York anymore. I LA. <laughs> so that was that was kind of how that whole thing was. I didn't think I would ever write for scripted TV before I started trying to write a script, and then I realized it was so fun. Like, you get to create a whole world. You get to create characters. You get to uh, put together a story, and putting together a story is so much more complicated than you think. It's like calculus, and it's really... Stimulating, it's really fun, um, and you you get to, like in journalism, you kind of get to be funny with the facts that exist, or like, you know, commentary, you get to be funny with like the facts that exist. But like, in scripted TV, there's like, every show is its own universe, and so you get to be funny with a whole new set of rules and a whole new set of facts, and it's a really fun like brain exercise.
0: Yeah, absolutely. When you're working for Hysteria or doing Pods of America or or anything politics-related, you are not only having to fill your brain with a ton of stuff that is minutiae, and we've never really had to get into the minutia as much in the past as we do now because of the many, many things going on in politics, but you also have to sort of digest this constant stream of bad news. And, I, and in one of your uh, interviews you called you, – or I think it was on Hysteria – you said it was like being on an exercise bike of misery. <laughs> we're not actually going anywhere or getting anywhere. The scenery around us remains soul killing, but never changes. Um, Do you have any coping techniques or do you have ways of being aware of everything that's going on without it being soul crushing?
1: Yeah, there's a few things that I do when I start to feel like anxious about the state of the world or about like career stuff, because I think that like one thing that people don't, quite understand if they don't work in an industry or if maybe they're still working their way up toward a position that is like, you know, writing for a TV show or whatever. It's like you never stop feeling terrible about yourself. Like how terrible you feel about yourself is just going to be with you forever you're you're always going to doubt yourself you're always going to think you're not funny you're always going to think the thing that you wrote is the last good thing you're ever going to write you're always going to think you're you know, like all of those things stick with you as you advance in your career well, what you do is like get better at acknowledging the ridiculousness so there's one thing that i do when i'm starting when i get like writer's block which is my biggest i i like I'm a pretty well-adjusted person, except when I get writer's block, and then I'm crazy. I'm crazy like I'm the worst person ever. I'm never going to write another thing. <laughs> so here's what I do for that. There's a character named Don Music that was a Muppet on Sesame Street. Okay. Do you remember him?
0: Yes, of course.
1: Okay. So Don Music, for the uh, uninitiated, is a composer Muppet, and he every single interstitial that he's in, he will start composing a song that is a very well-known song, but he will get the words wrong and he will get comically frustrated and slam his head into his piano and say, I'll never get it. Never. And I think that that character existed to show little kids that, you know, perseverance is cool and giving up makes you look silly, which <laughs> now as an adult, I watch like I'll watch a clip of Don music getting frustrated and and, like, pounding its head on the piano in a way that's silly to remind myself that, like, you know, beating myself up is not good. Uh, And it makes me look ridiculous and sound ridiculous. I'm being a real Don music whenever I get down on myself. But when it comes to the world at large and the news and, you know, the world's on fire and our president is insane and, you know, that whole thing, there's a couple things that I uh, will do to try to escape that. One thing is I love going down, like, Wikipedia holes so I will think of a question that I've always wanted to know the answer to or um, a piece of art that I've always liked, and I'll read everything I can find about the thing. or I'll, find, I'll go to Wikipedia. I'll use it like a bibliography. At the end of every Wikipedia article, there's like right. a million articles about the thing that you can link to. And I'll just spend like an hour and a half just filling my mind with information that is totally irrelevant to what I'm doing, and it doesn't have anything to do with the news cycle. And it almost feels like kind of taking a bath. It's like Mm. you kind of wash away the grossness of, you know, having to read a news story about a tweet in response to the tweet of the son of some, you know, guy who's about to go to jail for colluding with Russia. It just like it it feels like very cleansing. I also really like um, there's a podcast from The New Yorker uh, that's the fiction podcast where they just have famous authors read really famous short stories and then they talk about why they love the story and it's so pure and it's so lovely. And the woman who hosts it has this like very soothing, gentle voice and gentle demeanor. And it's so like nice and calming. I really like that. Um, and then I also like um, sometimes I I'll go through, uh, I like making playlists. I love music. I love trying to kind of remind myself, I'll listen to music sometimes in my life when I felt like I was going through something bad and, and I'll remember that you know, despite the news being bad, people were, were still out there making art, still out there making music, and uh, that people carry on regardless of how like overwhelming it feels. So that's that's sort of my coping mechanism. I also like try to to stay physically active. Um, I try to go running. I do yoga. I get outside. I go hiking, um, because I think living inside of a little screen in the palm of your hand is just never been the way that people were intended to exist. And uh, I just think it's really important to get outside of like the internet and social media as much as you possibly can.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Those are all great ones. And I imagine all those deep dives also gives you random facts that turn up very useful in comedy, because comedy is about specificity. So you're like, Oh, I have a random fact about this that'll work out great here. Uh, Yeah, although
1: there's, like, this weird, like, gravitational pull for me whenever I'm in a Wikipedia dive where it's, like, I always end up reading about, like, weird pandemics or, like, (laughs) super stark, like, true crime from the 1800s (laughs) or, like, a body that washed up on a beach in Australia and nobody knew who it was and, like, nobody's ever solved the mystery. It's, like, very macabre stuff. So it makes me not a great cocktail party conversation partner.
0: It's interesting to do that To escape the darkness of the now is to just find other dark, unrelated things to dive into. Right.
1: Right. We'll always have murder, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, they do say that part of the reason we listen to sad music when we're already sad is that it actually makes us feel like we're a part of a larger community of sad people and we're not alone in our sadness because whoever is singing or performing this is equally as down as we are. Um, mm-hmm. which I always found interesting because do, you do, like, sort of double down when you're sad and just, like, get real emo about it with your sad, sad music.
1: Mm-hmm. At least I yeah, do. totally.
0: You mentioned social media. You're on it. You, I think, seem to take the same approach that I do, which is that the responses and retweets for people aren't necessarily for that person. You're sort of speaking to the larger group of people who are paying attention, whether that's to inform about a particularly – the opinion that you think needs to be shouted down or educate with a more informed opinion about something that people don't seem to understand, or even just to help people get that they're not crazy in being bothered by things or in things not being okay and needing to speak to that, even if it's not going to fix it. I think some people don't Mm -hmm. get that, but that feels very natural to me to have to sometimes, instead of just continuing to digest things, at least speak back out about it, even if nothing's going to change right away.
1: Hmm. I think that goes back to a point that you were making about like what makes media female. And one thing that I think is different uh, or one thing that I've noticed among like female heavy places that I've worked or places that were geared toward women or places that were made by women or things that were made by women is that I've noticed that that female consumers of news in the media often look for community and conversation in, in a way that's a little bit different than the way that, that men tend to consume media so like, you know, I think that women and I as a woman and as like a as a host and as a you know personality or whatever, I kind of have noticed that people that respond to me, especially women who respond to me, kind of feel like we hang out. You know, it, it's like it's a community. It, it feels like we're all kind of we're all listening to the same conversation. We're all like kind of plugged into the same thing. Um, another thing that I think when it comes to social media, that the one way that I use it is that. I think that part of the reason I even have a career is because people who had more visibility than I did lent me some of theirs and, Mm. you know, like made my voice louder instead of just repeating what I said on their own platform. (laughs) And so I kind of I like when people who are up and coming or just, you know, people who don't do media for a living have like something really important to say. I like being in a position to elevate it with their name on it. You know, and I think that if I were just if I were going on TV, I couldn't just be like, well, as Twitter user so and so said, blah, 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 right. blah. But when I'm on Twitter, I can like retweet with somebody's name attached to it and I can interact with them and we can have a conversation and they can feel like we're all no part of a bigger conversation together. It feels very communal and collective in a way that's kind of encouraging in, a, in an era when it seems like people are kind of mean to each other. I think there's something really nice about that.
0: Yeah, I agree. I also think, you know, people often say that women have conversations just because they feel better just talking about it, even if there's no solution that they happen upon, and that men often have conversations with only a solution in mind, right? And so mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily make them feel better just to get it out there. Or maybe at least they, they've been, you know, conditioned to believe that if there is no solution, then the conversation isn't worthwhile. Um, and that women right. aren't always like that. Who would be your dream guest for hysteria?
1: Oh man, we just launched season two and we have like a bigger roster of co-hosts now or like panelists that are on with me now. Um, And some of them started out as like dream guests, like Michaela Watkins, who's now a panelist on the show. She's on every few weeks now. She started out as a guest and I'm a huge fan of her. We've had Amber Heard last season and she was Lovely and had so many so many interesting things to say. We had Jen Richards; she was great. We had Nicole Byer last season; she was great. Phoebe Robinson was on. Uh, We had a a really really cool group of people. But I think I think my dream guest would be I would love to have Nancy Pelosi on, Mm. just because I find her so you know impressive, regardless of whether or not you are into her politics. I just think she's like. In her late 70s and just kicking ass, and I just would love to talk to her. I'm also, I really love Lizzo, the musical artist Lizzo. I think she'd be really fun to talk to. I think Kamala Harris would be interesting as well. Um, In terms of other women that I'm interested in talking to, I love Nico Case. I would love to talk to Nico Case. I think it'd be really fun to have Olivia Coleman. She's had quite a year and she's like just so interesting and delightful in all of her roles. I love Melissa McCarthy as well. But you know, if you had to if you had to ask me to make a list, there'd be like hundreds of women on it because I just <laughs> find people that have worked hard and are doing something that they love doing and are really good at it. I find them endlessly fascinating.
0: Yeah. There's a couple in there. I don't know as well. So I'm excited to check them out a little bit more. Um, you mentioned a couple of female politicians in there and I'm, you know, fascinated as I'm watching people, declare themselves you know running for president and the immediate response and how it differs between men and women and it kind of fits into this conversation i've had with a couple of my guests lately as i try to navigate this male-dominated world and i wonder how often you think about likability versus respect so how often you think i deserve x or y or this is how i would want to interact with someone in a business sense versus how often do you feel like you have to soften it or change your approach because of, unfortunately, the way women in, in power positions are often viewed?
1: Well, first of all, I personally love a <laughs> I love somebody who's just like, uh, but, but like justified. I don't like someone who's a jerk for no reason, but I love somebody who is just straightforward and asks for what they want and, and, and you know, gets it done. In terms of like softening my approach, like I said, there's a difference between being assertive, and just being cruel and unnecessarily mean when i was uh contributing to an hln show uh, unfiltered with uh, or se cup unfiltered i was often on um opposite men who were very ideologically different than me and who had viewpoints that i that you know i just would never agree with you know but i never was harsh or rude or abrasive when I was on that show, first of all, because I was the guest of the host and, and it's like their party that they're throwing. So you don't right. go into somebody else's party and like break bottles on the, on the mantle. You you go and you behave according to the rules of the party. So I, I don't think I ever have hidden who I am, what I believe, what I've said, which is lucky for me because I think a lot of women who work in different spheres than I do have to kind of temper themselves. I, I'm lucky that there's really no hiding who I am and what I've said and what I do But I have, you know, when I am around people who are more conservative, I don't want to be the liberal that makes them hate liberals forever. You know, (laughs) I would rather just be patient with the person that I'm talking to and listen to them and hope that they listen to me and not insult them and try to be somebody that the next time they want to have a conversation about it, they can talk to me again without thinking that I'm just going to bite their head off. Right, and then you know, eventually we continue to be friends, and they believe they they come to agree with me that they're wrong, and we all agree <laughs> the same thing. No, I just I sort of am like you know, there's no point in being the person that I don't want to alienate people while I'm in a conversation with them. You know, for even though it's cathartic and fun to like make fun of, I don't know Don Jr. or Ivanka or anybody who I just kind of find politically repugnant. It's fun to do that, but if I were like you know face to face with somebody who is like a conservative or somebody who is like very pro-life. I'm very pro choice I would never like sit there and try to make them feel bad about themselves. That's, I think that's, that's one way that I've done that, but it's, it's not because I'm worried about it affecting my career. I think that there are plenty of people who are way meaner to people to their face than I am who have had great careers and it hasn't affected them at all. But I just think in order for me to live with myself, it's best for me to try to be, in a one-to-one conversation, like, respectful and fair. Unless somebody, you know, steps to me, in which case, okay, like, let's go. But, (laughs) you know, I think as long as everybody is keeping things, like, fairly respectful, then I I respond in kind.
0: And that's why it's become more and more important to keep having conversations face-to-face, because when we have them all online, we lose that desire to connect with someone, and instead we're more, you know, full-throated about our own opinions, uh, which... Leads to just more divisiveness. Uh, before I let you go, right. you have to do the one thing that everybody does but nobody expects. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, what's the natural talent you wish you were gifted with?
1: I wish I could play pool. I can't play pool or billiards or anything like that. I'm terrible.
0: <laughs> it's a good one. Number two, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one.
1: Uh, Purple Rain. If you could switch rain. lives
0: with anyone for a day, who would it be?
1: Oh, if I could switch lives with anyone for a day... Just out of just pure morbid curiosity, I think Meghan Markle. Interesting, yeah, yeah. It's like, what's that like? What's it like to be an like people, an entire country (laughs) treats you like a like you're you're a zoo animal, like you're a pet. You're walking around and people are always looking (laughs) at you, and you're always just just for one day. That would be super interesting, and then I would probably be done with it for sure.
0: Uh, Number four, what's the most scared you've ever been?
1: Oh my god, Uh, the most scared I've ever been. I went to Nepal in 2017 by myself for five and a half weeks. And um, one of the things I did when I was in Nepal was I hiked the Annapurna Trail, or the big circuit. Right. And one of the things that is on the Annapurna circuit, if you haven't gone, is there's an area called the Landslide Area, which takes you to tolicho Lake. And the Landslide Area is just a this is massive. It's like it takes a while to walk through. I don't know how long it takes, but it's just a, it is literally a landslide that you have to trek across on this very thin path. There's nothing to hang on to. There's no guardrails or anything like that. It's, an, it's a very scary and treacherous trek. And the most scared I've ever been was when I had to hike over that. There was just like no turning around. There's just like rocks falling. It's just horrible. I was like horsebacking away from the edge of a cliff scared.
0: Yeah, that sounds terrifying. Uh, alone, especially. Yeah. Um, I,
1: I had a I had a guide with me, but, like, he couldn't do anything. You know, if you, like, grab right. for somebody, you're both going to fall. Totally. So, yeah, it was yeah. super scary. Uh,
0: number five, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been?
1: Hmm, I'm trying to think. Of, I think that I have this sort of brain that erases trauma, which <laughs> has allowed me to continue on with my life without, like, really, you know, whatever. I think, you know, I there's a million little indignities have kind of characterized my life but I think that I went through a bad breakup in New York and I uh, just like couldn't stop crying but when you live in New York City there's no place to be alone really so you just have to do whatever you're going to do out in public I just remember like riding the train just crying and crying and crying and like not being able to stop crying and everyone was looking at me that was pretty embarrassing but I'm sure there was worse
0: I mean, I think we all have to just kind of forget about them in order to keep moving on through life and allowing ourselves. Totally, the I just start writing it, them down
1: though. Make, yeah, totally. Let's <laughs> make a book of them or something. That's
0: right. I think there is one that those those mortified, you know, those the live shows that went on for a while where people would read from like their old journals and stuff about the worst. Oh things my god! Them. That um, sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, it was a big thing in LA when I lived there. Uh, number six. What would you consider your biggest failure?
1: I think that in my life, I have not been great about maintaining friendships with people, even though, you know, I've moved a lot um, as an adult. And throughout my like changing jobs, changing where I live, I haven't been great at like exerting the effort to keep friendships up that I should have kept up. And now I'm sort of like, regretting that. That's a that's like a, that's a failure that's something I should have paid more attention to. But luckily it's something that, you know, you can it's not something that you can never work on, but for now it's something that I haven't done very well.
0: Uh number 7, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success?
1: It's probably tenacity, um like a refusal to that I've ever been that refusal you know, to acknowledge defeat. Even when it seems like it's inevitable, even when it seems like you're definitely not going to have a victory, like I just keep just refusing to completely give up is has probably been the thing that contributed the most.
0: Number eight. Have you ever been in a fist fight?
1: I was randomly walking down a sidewalk in Brooklyn, and a girl just punched me. I'd never seen her before. What? Yeah, it was super weird. I felt fu- it was it was like a freak thing. You know, you live in a city for long enough, and eventually, just some weird that some weird th- that happens to you. You know, like, oh, yeah, like a a raccoon got in my um, (laughs) fire escape or whatever. You know, like some weird thing will happen to you in the city. My weird thing was I was walking on North 6th Street in Brooklyn and a lady punched me. And, yeah. (laughs) In the face? Yeah, right in the face, like above um, above my eye. What did you do? I, like, called the police. <laughs> I like at first I just wanted to walk home and I was like I don't want anything more to do with this evening. I good day, sir. You know, but I like call. I would call the police because I was like I don't know. Like, you can't do that. Like as soon as I got punched, I I kept walking and I thought like you can't punch people. And uh, I had like kind of a welt above my eye and I just yeah I called the police. I had to go to the police station and then I had to go to the hospital to check for a concussion and it wasn't oh my very gosh. fun. That is so yeah. random.
0: Number nine. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve?
1: I would like to be kinder to myself. I think that I like have a lot of negative self talk, and I've convinced myself that I need it in order to succeed. You know, I need the like awful voice in my head telling me that like you know that I'm a bad writer, I'm not funny or whatever. I need I need that so that I try harder. But you know, I would love to find a different way than hating myself to <laughs> to carry on. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's amazing to me how many incredibly powerful, successful, impressive women feel that way. It really is so like societally ingrained in a lot of ways. I I never mm-hmm. really have men come on the pod and talk about self-doubt. Every once in a while I get a man who acknowledges imposter syndrome and that I think that's a very creative types person thing to have, but um, mm-hmm. you know, self-hate and all that stuff is just it's it seems unfortunately, to be predominantly female.
1: I think it's just something that we're told to think about ourselves. And so we do it. We like that. Like, self-hate is something that we are conditioned to direct on ourselves. And, like, it sucks.
0: Completely agree. Whether it's, like, superficial stuff, like, get rid of that cellulite, or, like, here's why guys don't like you, to, like, big picture, you know, this is why women don't succeed, right? It's, like, yeah. If someone else isn't going to do it to us, we'll probably just beat him to the punch just in case so that we let right. ourselves down first before they get to exactly. it.
1: Exactly. <laughs> it's like the scene in 8 Mile when Eminem like, wins the rap battle by like listing all the bad things about himself and then throwing the <laughs> mic at the other guy. That's right. what we are. We're all our own Eminem.
0: <laughs> it's so true. So true. Finally, number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Not like a phrase, but like three separate words.
1: I would hope funny, just because I get paid for that, and that would be good. <laughs> I would hope thoughtful and um, entertaining. I guess, like I, I, I don't, I don't want to be boring.
0: Yeah, those are all good ones. In uh, the bonus question, who would you recommend I have on the podcast? Who should I talk to?
1: Ooh. You know who I love? And I don't know if she would do it, but she I don't know, who, whatever. Um, Maisie Hirono, who's a senator from Hawaii, who is really outspoken and, and super fascinating and, like, cool and stuff. Also, like, you know, Michaela Watkins, who I mentioned as being a panelist on the show, is really interesting and cool and, uh, and great. And also, uh, I, I should have said this before, Catherine O'Hara yeah. is so so amazing and i like everything she does i just i just love her and i think she would be a great person to talk to too um and then let me think i think you know who i found going to the sports thing do you remember that little snowboarder from california chloe kim i think is her name yeah I she, I would listen to her talk about whatever for like an hour.
0: <laughs> she's amazing. Yeah, we've had her at some ESPNW stuff, and she's just like a little powerhouse badass. Yeah. But like, yeah, but like still just to. a teen who wants to talk about poop emojis too. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> amazing. <laughs>
0: thank you so much for chatting with me. I really enjoyed it, and I'll you know, hopefully even have you back another time to talk about the stuff we didn't get to. But uh, thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Oh, And another thing.
0: This week's That's What She Read is actually coverage from all over about something that was just so cool. And if you missed it, I wanted to make sure I brought your attention to it. The U.S. women's soccer team decided to honor a variety of women that inspired them by putting their names on the back of their jerseys during the She Believes Cup match that they just had in England. And it's everybody from Cardi B to Malala Yousafzai to Beyonce, Carrie Underwood, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, and just this idea of taking women that are confident role models that represent something bigger than themselves, putting them on the back of their jerseys and paying tribute was such a cool idea. And so if you search, you can find all sorts of shots of the jerseys and all of the women who they chose to represent them. um Serena Williams and Abby Wambach and some other athletes. Doris Burke in there as well. Jess Mendoza, who, by the way, just got a job working with the Mets. Um, it's pretty cool. If you go to the U.S. Women's Soccer Twitter, they have all sorts of coverage of it. And uh, I love that team for, for continuing to uh, kind of set a path for professional women's athletes. And as we head into the World Cup, Uh, They're doing some pretty cool things to bring attention to what should be another long run. So check it out. And thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me.
1: That's what she said.